0: Thyatira. And so I've tried to give a title to each of these seven churches and today Thyatira gets a unflattering title of the tolerant church or perhaps we could say the compromising church. And so we are going to look today together from verses 18 to 29. I'm not going to read all those to open up this morning just for sake of time, but we will cover the majority of those verses. I will also say that In the past messages, I've tried to go line by line. I probably won't cover each line of this portion today because I want to try to make more application of it, but we will certainly cover the majority of these verses and try to exposit and expound those to you. But I wanted to open up with the thought of tolerance because that seems to be a very popular buzzword in our society today. Uh, Many people expect, especially of Christians, that we need to be tolerant. And like a lot of things today, when you ask for a definition of what tolerance is, uh, you will certainly not get a standard one-size-fits-all type of definition when you ask those things. Because what I've seen in culture, and it's ramped up a lot more in the last few years, and I, I think that you'll probably agree with me, is that it started out that we just needed to be tolerant. That we needed to just be accepting of one another's beliefs. Even if we didn't agree with one another, we could certainly show respect ...to one another on our disagreements. But as with most things in the world, it didn't stop there, and it won't stop there. Tolerance is no longer good enough. I I think that we all can realize that today. It's not just enough that the world wants us to tolerate them, but that the world wants us to accept everything that they do, even when the Word of God stands against it. But it doesn't stop there. Not only now must we be tolerant and accepting we must take the next step and actually celebrate the things that the world calls good, but that the Bible calls sinful. And so it's a slippery slope that we are on, and, that it's, and in actuality, it's a broad road that we should never get on to begin with. Tolerance will never stop there, and it will never end, at least from a world's perspective, where we feel comfortable as believers in stopping. And ultimately, if you're not tolerant and accepting, and celebrating of these things, you will be silenced. You will be silenced. We live in a world today, and I never thought it would happen so quickly as it has the last few years. But another popular buzzword of today is cancel culture. Cancel culture. Now again, nobody can really define what should or shouldn't be canceled It's a set of predetermined ideas by a certain minority group of people. The media seems to control who deserves to be canceled. Social media especially. Certain folks have their Twitter accounts suspended. Other folks that do all sorts of diabolical things can continue to have their Twitter and Facebook and all those things be activated. There's no rhyme or reason to this is what I'm trying to say. But I can tell you this. If you stand on the Word of God, you will be in their sights. You will be a target of cancel culture. And anything that removes God from the public square will be celebrated. That is where we are at as a society. But in some respects, it's nothing new. It may be repackaged. It may be a little bit more broad because of the world that we live in with internet and all those things. But it's not really new because churches have always, to some degree, tried to become tolerant. A few decades ago, it was labeled as the seeker-sensitive movement where churches wanted lost people to come in and feel right at home. Now, don't get me wrong. Every church ought to be inviting to sinners. We ought to open our doors and say, you can come here and hear the message of Jesus Christ. You can come here and find people that will love you and pray for you and care for you. But what we should never say is that sinners can come here, stay comfortable in their sin, live any way they want to, and we will not speak out biblically against it. We fail to be a biblical New Testament church when our seeker sensitivity crosses that boundary and decides it would rather please man than God. And that's where many churches have gotten to today because this progressive Christianity is a Christianity that changes with the culture. Friends, we serve an unchanging God. We have a book that does not change. There is no possible way that we can take God and His Word and make it change to fit a culture. It will not work. You're going to forsake one or the other. Either God or the world will be forsaken in this path that we're trying to take. These progressive churches have started to change the Word of God to fit the culture. And you see it over and over. It's almost a weekly thing now where I see pastors that I used to listen to. Well-known pastors. Churches that I would have probably attended. That I couldn't even step foot in the door anymore. Because of the things that they've espoused. And I'm not talking about small secondary doctrinal issues. I'm talking about major salvation type of issues. Things that we just cannot compromise on. And these were well respected Bible teachers and Bible scholars. And men that professed to be called of God. Compromising. To fit in with the world. To be accepted. To be liked by the world. And the problem is guys when, when we refuse to do that we will and already have begun to receive labels. We're bigots. We are bigots if we don't approve. We're narrow-minded. We're outdated. We're prejudiced. All these terms are just ad hominem attacks to further alienate us from a society that Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. It shouldn't catch us off guard, church. But that pressure to be liked is real. It's not just these young people that face peer pressure. Even as adults, I don't think any of us walk around and and like to be disliked. We want to have friends. We want people to be around us. For the most part, sometimes we don't want people around us. But there are times when we enjoy company and companionship. And the more that we take a stand, it seems that we alienate ourselves from the world... And that, again, is why it's so important to have a strong biblical church with believers. Now, I don't believe we ought to just stay huddled inside our walls and never leave to evangelize. That's a dying church, too. But we need one another's fellowship. We need one another's encouragement because things are only going to get tougher. And we need that encouragement. We need that strengthening together. The unity that the Word of God speaks about is so important now more than ever. And so we come to a church named Thyatira, And they are in a position where, much like us, the world around them is bearing down on them. And the call to be tolerant is going to come, especially to a specific person and a group of people. And I'm going to try to make application of that today. So hold on for just a minute as we get there. But as I've tried to do each week, to take you back 2,000 years or so to the culture and times that these were written in, uh, so you can better understand and not necessarily just look at this through 2022 America. So seven churches in seven cities, real churches, real cities. Thyatira is one of those. It's actually the smallest of all the cities. So even though it's the longest letter, it's actually the smallest of cities. Its name means unceasing sacrifice, which, again, in the Bible, names have a very big significance. And this one is no different because, remember, last week we talked about Pergamum. Pergamum was the one that sat up on the hill. It was the capital city, and so it was very fortified. It could see for miles if an enemy was coming. But about 30 to 40 miles east is Thyatira. And Thyatira was sort of like a military garrison. It was like a buffer, if you will. Because if an army was approaching from that side to attack Pergamum, before they got to Pergamum, they were going to have to stop or go through Thyatira. So Thyatira, over its history, has been destroyed multiple times and rebuilt because armies would come, they would hold them off as long as they could so Pergamum could get ready and prepare for battle and then once Thyatira was wiped out, then they would move on towards Pergamum. So this idea of an unceasing sacrifice, it it was real for them. They were sacrificing themselves many times to protect their sister city in this capital city. Uh, It was founded by the Greek Empire and of course, when Rome took over most of the known world, it became a Roman province and one of the things that's neat about Thyatira and its history is I've talked to you a little bit about each of these cities and they had what were called trade guilds so these were almost like unions but Thyatira had probably the biggest bunch of these things and basically you had to you had to belong to a trade guild to get work like it was very difficult for you to find a job if you weren't joined to one of these guilds Two of the biggest in Thyatira were metalworking, specifically brass and bronze, and the other was linen making, uh, which was actually a wool type that they made. And it was this beautiful purple color. It was a color that was only produced in Thyatira, and it was sought after all over the world. There was this little sea creature that they would get, slice it open, a couple of drops of this dye would come out, and they would stain these beautiful purple linens. We see this... In the Scriptures, in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul is on his missionary journeys, he stops in a place called Philippi, and he preaches there, and he meets a lady. And in Acts sixteen fourteen, listen to what it says about this lady that he meets in Philippi. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Where was she from? The city of Thyatira. And she was a seller of purple goods, or this purple wool who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Lydia has traveled all the way to Philippi, which is quite a journey, to sell these purple linens that were produced in Thyatira by this little sea creature that they would kill and and get the dye out of. And so that's kind of the background of what's going on, at least socially speaking and, and culturally speaking, in Thyatira is a very very small city but very busy with these guilds producing a lot of different things but for the Christians who refused to join these guilds it was very tough to find work now you say why wouldn't they join a guild why what's so compromising about working well here's the problem every guild had a god or a goddess that they would pray to to bless the work that's one problem And then if you've also ever read, especially in Paul's letters, you'll find a lot of times where he talks about meat, sacrificed to idols. That may seem like a strange thing to us. But that was what happened in these trade guilds. They would pray to these gods or goddesses, and then they would have regular love feasts where people would come and bring an offering. They would give a small piece of that offering to be burned on an altar or given to this god or goddess. And then afterwards they would have this huge feast with the food that had been offered to this false god and then they would partake in drunkenness and incest and sexual immorality and all sorts of things that went on. So this wasn't just a nice little dinner between co-workers. This was idolatry. This was all sorts of immorality. And to be a part of that guild meant that you participated in that. And so the Christians refused. So not only were they not able to work but that they were ostracized by all the people because the Jews which there weren't a lot of Jews in Thyatira but nonetheless if there were Jews they were looked down on as well so they had it coming just like these other churches from both angles so look with me at our text today and I want you to see a few things as we get into this in verse 18 as, as with all these letters it's kind of introduced the same way to the angel the messenger of the church in Thyatira Write the words of the Son of God. This is the only time that he uses the title Son of God in the entire book of Revelation. And again, I don't think that God does anything accidental. One of the main deities that was worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo, who was the sun God. And so he is saying, look, you may worship the Son, but I am the Son of God. And I alone am worthy of worship. Jesus, my friends, is the only way to the Father. You want to start off a message with being politically incorrect. Here we go. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Anyone can come. If you're listening today and you're lost, Jesus says to you, come. Come. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Christianity is exclusive in that anyone may come, but it's inclusive in that there's only one way you can come. There's only one door you can go through, and that is through Jesus Christ. But He will in no way turn away those that come through Him and by Him in faith. He's the Son of God, and notice how He looks at this church in Thyatira. He says He has eyes like a flame of fire. He's searching, He's judging, He's watching The Lord is well aware of what takes place in our lives. He's well aware of what's going on in our churches. And He's well aware of what's happening in the world. Sometimes we listen to the headlines. We talked about this in Sunday school. And and we wonder, God, do you see what's going on? Most certainly He does. He most certainly sees it all. Not one thing will go unjudged or unrewarded that is done well. So you can be sure that God is searching. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished or polished brass. That speaks of purity. It speaks of the fact that he walks through his churches pure and undefiled. He is set above every other person. He is exalted. He is glorified. And he is on the throne now, ruling and reigning. That is the picture of Christ to this church in Thyatira. And he goes on as he does in in many of these churches in verse 19. And he says to them, I know your works. So they're serving, they're busy. He uses two words in this verse that talks about external things, being busy. He says, I know your works. And a few lines later, he says, I know your service. So they're working and they're serving. They're doing deeds. They're doing ministry. On the outside looking in, they are a busy church. He also says to them, when I look inwardly at what motivates you to do these outward things, I see some good things there. I see love, which without love, nothing we do matters, does it? He says, I see faith, or literally that's faithfulness. How important is it today that we are found faithful? And I don't just mean faithful to attend church, certainly that's a part of it, but I mean faithful each and every day to serve God in our lives, outside of church. I hope that you don't just come in here for an hour and pretend that Jesus is important and then leave here and don't think about him until next week. We, we remain faithful to him because he's been faithful to us. And so this church was loving, it was faithful, and they were enduring. It was difficult, and they didn't tuck tail and run. They were hanging on to the faith. All good qualities in this church. And then we look at verse 20 in that three-letter word that scares us sometimes. But, but I have this against you. Now, depending on what version you're using, the wording might be a little bit different here. But he says, I have this against you that you, what's your translation say there? That you allow or tolerate. That is what most translations are going to use there. You're allowing this. You're tolerating this. And this is where most churches get themselves into trouble and most believers get themselves into trouble. Because the only way, listen to me, the only way that something can continue to be in your life is when you allow it. When you tolerate something, it will continue to persist in your life. Sometimes we tolerate and allow the wrong people in our lives. It's not easy to cut people out of our lives. But, friends, sometimes that's necessary. I know, Brother George, you and I and Melody, we've talked about that before when it comes to young people, especially if you're going to follow Jesus. Again, I'm not saying that we should just have only believing friends and never talk to a lost person. How can we share the gospel if we have no interaction with the lost? But there is a separation when you become a believer from the world. You are no longer going to be able to go out and do the things that you used to do before you knew Christ. It's impossible unless you compromise, you tolerate, you allow that ungodliness into your life, into your heart, and into your church. And so he says to them, you're doing a lot of good things. You have some good motives behind you, but I have a problem because you are tolerating or allowing. What were they allowing? Listen to this. The woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. I want to stop there for a minute before we go on. And and I want to really look at this a little bit today. Because when we think about Pergamum, if you were with us last week or if not, you can go back and listen to that message or just read the text for yourself. And you'll see that Pergamum was guilty of allowing corruption and even false doctrine to creep in. So it was there. It was starting to permeate the church and the believers there. Thyatira had went to the next step and they welcomed it. Not only were they uh, letting it come in and allowing it, they were starting, as our culture is today, to accept it, celebrate it, participate and partake in it. And I will say this, and you can take this or leave it, this is just my thought, but I believe that a church that begins to walk with the world will eventually be won over by the world. I really believe that. I really, really believe that. And so last week in Pergamum, we looked at a guy, a false prophet, by the name of Balaam. And I won't go back and rehash all that. You can read about him in the book of Numbers. But he he tried to curse God's people, and God continued to bless them. And so since he couldn't curse them, he corrupted them. He took them away into sexual immorality, and he got them to worship false gods. And that was his plan when he couldn't curse them. He allowed them to become corrupted by their own vices and their own acceptance and tolerance of these things. So I want you to notice when it comes to Thyatira and we look at this, they're tolerating this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Most false teachers proclaim themselves to be called of God. God calls true men of God to shepherd and preach and teach. It's God's call upon that man. False prophets and prophetesses call themselves. They're self-appointed. And you'll see that oftentimes in their ministry because it may look good for a time, but eventually the focus of the ministry will become less and less on God and more and more on that person. Follow me. Do what I say. If you disagree with me, then you're going to be shunned. You're going to be punished. We see that happen in churches. We see that happen today where if pastors fall into some type of, of Im- immorality or some type of any sin, that they almost have built a bodyguard system around themselves where they're untouchable. They're uncorrectable. And, and the attacks go out to the people. People. The person making the accusation becomes the enemy rather than the victim. And that happens so often in these churches where the focus turns to that person rather than the focus being on Christ. A prophet in the Old Testament was somebody that spoke for God. Obviously, they didn't have a complete 66-volume bound Bible at that time. The scriptures were still being penned. And so God would call men and sometimes women known as prophets or prophetesses, To proclaim his message. To speak for God. Sometimes to an individual. Sometimes to a nation. But that's what the prophets did. And this woman had anointed herself, if you will, as a prophetess. She had a message from God. And she was going to share it with the people in Thyatira. And I want to tell you this today. Please. Please. Whether you're a member here not a member here. Whether you're visiting here or just. You know, plan to stay here wherever you're at. Please take this with you. Be very, very careful when you listen to people or teachers or anybody that always says, God told me this. God told me that. Listen, I have seen more trouble and more cults and more things happen wrong when people are constantly saying that they're receiving this direct revelation all the time from God. Just me and God are all the time having this conversation and He tells me exactly what I need to tell you and what I need to do and what you need to do. Listen, can God still speak through dreams and visions? Sure He can. Sure He can. Does God give us promptings and directions when we pray for wisdom and open the right doors and all that stuff? Absolutely. But guys, God has given us His Word. He has given us The very thing that we need, the authority of God rests in the Scriptures. And when God speaks to us, He's going to speak through His Word. Now again, if you claim that God has spoken to you, the first thing I'm going to say is, well, let's get in the Word of God and see if it lines up. Because most of the time, these private revelations are in direct contradiction to the Word of God. And if you're saying one thing and this is saying something else, I don't know about you, but I'm going with this. I'm going with this because this has proved for over 2,000 years to be trustworthy and I've seen too many men and women fall to put all my eggs in that basket. So please be careful when someone comes along and says, well, God told me this. God told me to do that. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways or in diverse places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So Old Testament... When the word of God is being communicated, He used prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things. So as the church is formed after Jesus ascended, we have the Holy Scriptures penned and written down by Paul and Peter and John and these other apostles that were eyewitnesses to Christ. They have been verified and validated over and over again. And so we can rest in knowing that what we have today, regardless of translation, now you're going to find differences in the King James and the ESV and the NIV and all those things, but at the end of the day, we have enough manuscripts to look at this stuff and say, regardless of translation, our Bibles today are 99% or more accurate and the little bit that they differ between text to text is nothing doctrinally that's going to change the message. We can be sure, one thing we can be sure of is that we have a Word of God that is inspired and infallible that we can trust. It hasn't been changed over the centuries. It hasn't been altered. It's not man's Word, it's God's Word. And we can rest on that for sure. And so when we, when we look at this there are implications to me saying that not only when I say is the word of God complete and it's final and it contains authority if I make that statement then there's something else that must go along with that and that is this if you claim that this book is complete and finalized then that also means that that there are no longer any more prophets and there are no longer any more apostles and some people say well now wait a minute wait a minute You can't have it both ways. If God is continuing to give new revelation and adding to His Word, then there are apostles and there are prophets that are speaking new revelation. But if God has given us everything we need and His final authority rests in His Word, then those things were no longer necessary. That when John died, the uh, the reign of the apostles ended. Paul was the last apostle called. He says so in the book of Galatians. So we have got to understand that there are many people that give themselves... This title, I am apostle so-and-so, I'm prophet and prophetess so-and-so. God didn't give you that title. You gave yourself that title. And if you're claiming to speak for God, that's a scary thing to say. You better be sure that what you're saying was from God and not just from you and what you want to say. And we see that over and over today. There are so many folks that are just downright deceived They're nuts. I don't know what term you want to use. They're just downright crazy. I mean, I I try to share some of these things on Facebook. Again, I I don't want to constantly be negative about stuff, but I feel like it's my duty. God has given me a platform on Facebook. A lot of people read that stuff that I post and follow, and I want to use it to try to impart truth. And, and, And I don't go on a witch hunt every week and just try to call out everybody that's wrong except me because I'm wrong too. There's times when I don't always get it right. But, man, I mean, just last week I shared a video. Some of you may have seen with Kenneth Copeland, who I, I hope you already aren't following him before I even post anything. But in this video, he stands before his congregation, and he says he wakes up in the middle of the night from a dream, and God is speaking to him, and Jesus is standing at the foot of his bed with a plate of cookies. And he offers him to eat some cookies. And and people are, hey, wow, Really? I'm like, man, wouldn't you run out of a place if if I stood up there and told you that probably somebody'd call Fort Hamilton and say, You better come get pastor he he needs a he needs a break or a pill or something something's wrong with that guy. I would hope right, and I'm not making light of those situations, but my goodness, you know what is going on that that not only can someone stand in a pulpit and say that, but people in the congregation believe it, how deceived are we? How deceived are they I mean over and over, Joseph Smith and the whole Church of Mormon started with a vision of, you know, God saying that all the churches are corrupt and he's planted golden tablets up in somewhere in New York and his angel's going to take you and show you and help you train. I mean, guys, so many of these false religions have started with, God told me. God said this. And there's no way to verify it unless you believe the guy standing up there with the smile on his face and the charismatic voice. And a lot of people follow that. Please be careful. That's what was going on here. This woman, this self-proclaimed prophetess was standing up and she was saying a lot of things that sounded good. Perhaps she was easy on the eyes and she spoke well and she pulled people away in this stuff. The name is obviously a reference to someone in the Old Testament named Jezebel. I don't know how familiar you are with Jezebel in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I want you to understand who this woman was. We read about her in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 16.31 says this, this is speaking of a king named Ahab. So Ahab was the seventh king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Most all the kings in the northern kingdom were wicked, but some were more wicked than others, and there probably wasn't a worse king than Ahab when it came to wickedness. So this guy's already off to a bad start, and then he doubles down by getting probably a worse wife to go along with him, so As if it had been a light thing for him, that's Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for him his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So Ahab, king of the northern ten tribes of Israel, intermarries with a Phoenician pagan woman who was the daughter of the priest king of Tyre, who was worshiping Baal and so he brings her down to, to Palestine to Israel joins in marriage with her and begins to follow along with her ways follow along with her worship he's serving these false gods just like his wife is doing and he's encouraging the people of Israel to do the same remember how we started this message out With the tolerant idea? It wasn't just go along with this. It's now accept this. It's now join us and celebrate this. And just like our culture today, if we refuse, we are canceled. You know what Jezebel did to the true people of God that would not bow their knee to Baal? She had them slaughtered. She killed the prophets of God. Except for a hundred that were hidden in a cave. She canceled them, literally. We see that same spirit, that same idea taking place in our world today. This woman appointed herself to be a prophetess. Now, I'm not going to beat this drum, and this is not where I want to go with this message, but I felt like I needed to at least say this. The New Testament, from everything that I see and have studied and believe, only calls men to occupy the pulpit in a local church. Now, ladies, I know that that gets a lot of ladies fired up and you get mad. I am in no way, shape, or form saying that women don't have a role in the church. Women played a gigantic role all throughout the Bible. It was to women that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, first appeared to. It is women that do many wonderful things. I am in no way demeaning or diminishing the call of women in the local church. But make no mistake about it. There are certain things prescribed in the Word of God, and again... If we are going to believe this book and go by this book, then we have got to stand on things even if it's tough for us sometimes. 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 says this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, that word in the King James is a bishop, which means to oversee the church. It's speaking of the pastor, the shepherd of the church. He, notice these are all masculine pronouns. We still can define what a male is a fe- and a female is here in this church. We don't have to ask. I'm not a biologist, but I can tell you what a man and a woman is. And these are masculine pronouns. He desires a noble task. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires this, he must be the husband, you'll notice it says in there, of one wife. Again, in our world today, that doesn't mean that it's a man and a woman. But in... My definition, and in the Word of God's definition, it is what it says. The husband is a man, the wife is a woman, and it's saying that for the overseer, he must be the husband which makes him a man. And so, again, I'm not trying to just be divisive. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just trying to be biblical. And I know there are many churches that have women pastors in the church, and to me, that is a woman calling herself. Because... It can't have it both ways. Either God calls men only or He calls both. But somebody's wrong here. And I believe and I've seen... And again, there are some fabulous women that teach and proclaim the Word of God and they should use those gifts. The ladies at at Trenton... Just had a wonderful conference. Sandra does a phenomenal job teaching the Word of God to ladies. I thank God. We have mostly all women teaching our Sunday school classes and things of that nature. I thank God for the women in our church and the gifts that they have. I'm talking specifically about this role. That's all I'm saying. And we need to be biblical about that. This woman appointed herself, and I believe that a lot of churches, women have appointed themselves to positions that they are not called to biblically. And ultimately, that church is going at some point to suffer because of that. They just will. Because here's what I want to close out with. I want to give you this thought. I think this is important uh, when we look at this text. Jezebel was a real person in the Old Testament. I believe this woman in the New Testament Was a real person. Was her name literally Jezebel? Probably not. Could have been, but probably not. Because that name obviously carried evil connotations with it. And I don't think anybody would intentionally want to name their kid Jezebel at that time. But her nature and her deeds and her spirit lined right up with the Old Testament Jezebel. And guys, I know that sometimes as Baptists we get a little freaked out when we talk too much about the Holy Ghost and spiritual things and all that stuff because, again, we don't, we don't want to dive off into that charismatic talk too much. But sometimes we don't talk about it enough. And there is a spiritual battle. I've spent weeks talking about the fact that we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood here, that there is a spiritual kingdom of darkness, that there is a real devil with a real demonic host that wants to see you, fall that wants to see you go to hell that wants to see you lose your witness we are battling a demonic force guys and there's no way around that and this spirit this idea this concept is still alive and well today we see it all around us and if you're not careful when you allow it you will see it in churches i bet if i talk to some of you enough that have been in churches different churches in your life at some point after i share some of these things you'll say man I can tell you some stories about that It happened in the church I was in. And I pray to God we never allow it to happen here. But we've got to be on guard because don't ever think for a moment just because we're biblical and we're doing right things that the devil is going to leave us alone and go down the street somewhere else. He would like nothing more than to see every church he can fall, every pastor he can fall. We need to keep our guard up all the time. We need to be accountable to one another. We need to encourage one another. We need that. Absolutely. So what is this Jezebel spirit? Well, I want to say this, and I've said it already. A Jezebel spirit, number one, is self-appointed. It's a self-appointed or self-proclaimed. And why do I say that? Because it believes it's above authority. Anytime you look at these folks with this type of attitude, this type of demonic influence, whatever you want to call it, it is someone that is above teachability. Well, who do you think you are? Why are you coming to me with this? They're almost aggravated that you would come and even try to point out something to them, that you would try to talk to them or question anything in their leadership or anything in their decision-making. Be very careful of people that are unteachable, that can't ever be corrected. That's a big red flag. None of us have all the answers, including the pastor. I don't get this thing right all the time. I never want to be some... I want to cast a vision. I want to try to take you in that direction biblically. But I don't ever want to be the guy that says it's my way or the highway. It's not that way. It should not be that way. We are a church and we need to work together as a body. Jesus is the head. We are all part of that body, including me. We need each other. But this spirit is an unteachable, self-appointed, not receive any type of instruction or authority. And I'll say this too about a Jezebel spirit. You see it with Jezebel in the, in the text here, and you probably have encountered this at some point. They use manipulation to get their way. They use manipulation. And I'm going to say this. I believe I see this more now than ever, especially with the social media stuff. You young girls, especially young girls, but even older women, You have been taught and trained and are accepting and tolerating the fact that you can use your bodies to get what you want. You use your body to get what you want. I was listening to a guy the other week talk about the fact that there was a man in his church, I forget what, Sunday school director or something along that line, and he was seduced by a woman and he finally gave in and slept with her. And she used the threat at that point on, if you tell anybody, I'm going to expose you. I want you to put my family in position. I want you to do this. She was controlling him now out of fear because she had used her body and he had given in to that sin and now she was using that as manipulation and a tool to get her way and everything that she wanted. And we see that so much today. You young ladies, your body was given to you by God. He gave that to you not to just be a tool to seduce people. Listen, if somebody just loves you for their bo- your body, they don't love you. They don't love you. Beauty is fleeting. And when they see somebody else that's a little more beautiful, you will be forgotten. Save your body. Use your body to be a pure thing for marriage that God intended it to be. But I'm not just picking on the women because men have been taught the same thing only not so much using their bodies but just seeing a body as something that's just there to be gratified. Pornography use has exploded over the years. And that is because men, young men, and men in general, have just been trained that there's nothing more to sex than just to be gratified. Again, sex is not ugly. So many people in churches don't want to talk about sex because we just view it from a negative uh, aspect. Sex is a beautiful thing created by God and given to God for a man and a woman to be in a covenant marriage together. It's an intimacy. It's beautiful. There's nothing dirty and funny and nasty about marriage. But just like everything else, the world has taken it, corrupted it, and twisted it, and turned it into that. But the purity of the Word of God is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. But you've got to look at it through this lens, guys. Not through what the world defines it as. And this, this Jezebel spirit rebels against authority, and it uses manipulation. And ultimately, it will use that intimidation. In 1 Kings 19, think about this. Just the day before, Elijah has taken probably one of the most courageous stands that anybody in the Bible ever did. He stands up to the prophets of Baal. He stands up to Ahab and Jezebel. And God does a great miracle and, and, and comes down and, and slaughters. These prophets are slaughtered. And then we come to chapter 19 of 1 Kings and listen to what happens. Ahab, he couldn't speak for himself. He was weak-kneed, limp-wristed, and he, he would have his wife do the dirty work. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message or a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And in the verses that follow, we see Elijah going, uh, taken off. He's scared to death. He goes a day's journey out in the wilderness. He sits down under a tree and he says, Oh God, just take my life. This man that was brave and taking a stand just the day before is now out in the wilderness under a tree asking God to kill him because he doesn't want to face Jezebel. You see this manipulation leads to intimidation and that's this spirit that is behind all this stuff. How did that happen? How does it happen? They tolerate it. You see it in our text today. They tolerate it. They allow it to take place. Churches tolerate that spirit. Listen, I don't like confrontation. I've never been a confrontational person. I do not like it. But sometimes it's necessary. In the Word of God, He gives very specific instructions at times for church discipline. Again, that's never something that I look forward to. It's never something that I hope we ever have to do. But there are times when we have to do it. If we tolerate sin... At the expense of not hurting someone's feelings, we are allowing that into our church and into our lives, and that will be far worse than hurting someone's feelings. It just will be. And the point of discipline is always reconciliation and restoration. It's not to say, get out of here, you evil sinner. Get away from us perfect people. Look, we're all messed up too, but hopefully we're walking close enough to the Lord where when we do fall short, we repent and confess and try to get right. And we can be taught. We're teachable. But when you reach a point where you will not listen to authority, you will not listen to God, you will not repent, you continue to sin openly, habitually, and regularly, you don't leave the church any other repercussion. We can't continue to allow that, especially when it starts to harm the body itself. And I'm sure that some of you can tell stories of people that were destructive through gossip or slander or adultery or whatever in a church, and the church failed to address it. John MacArthur, and I'm not making any accusations because I don't know the story, and I hope it'll come out, but he's right in the middle of an embroiled in a big mess right now with that very thing. Supposedly, he tolerated some type of of sexual immorality by one of his church leaders, and now it's all coming back, and it's a mess. I don't know the situation. Could they have dealt with it? Should they have dealt with it? Yes, if it was known, absolutely. But for whatever reason, they didn't or they couldn't, and now it's a mess. And it will always be that way, guys. We've got to deal with these things. We can't allow and tolerate like this. And God, in His mercy and grace, I want to close with this. Notice what He does. Despite all the evil, despite all the wickedness of Jezebel and everybody else that tolerated it, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. God is gracious and merciful. If He was to judge us when we deserved it, none of us would be here right now. He gives us, through His love and long-suffering and patience, He gives us time. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Isn't it a wonderful thing that a holy and just God, who can't look upon sin, would allow sinners to have opportunity after opportunity to turn away from that to embrace him and his son. And to be forgiven and restored to a right relationship. We don't deserve that. And yet he offers that. Maybe you're here today and you've, the first time you've heard this. Or maybe you've heard it multiple times. God has given you yet another opportunity today to turn from your sin and know him. Maybe you're a believer and you're not living for him. He's given you yet another opportunity. He woke you up today. He gave you the strength to come to church. To hear the word of God preached. To worship among God's people. And listen. You have an opportunity today to say, Lord, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not living the way I ought to be. And I want to confess that. I want to come to you and lay that stuff down. I want to be encouraged by my church family or these folks that are here today because nobody in here is going to laugh and jeer at you if you come forward and admit that you're struggling. We're going to come alongside of you and say, man, I am too. Let me help you with this thing. Let us help you with this thing. We can't do it alone. You're in a place where you can receive help from a God that has helped many others before. And as we, we won't go through it, but as we look at the remaining verses, he basically boils it down to this. You're at a crossroads. Like, you've tolerated this. I'm giving you time to repent. What is it going to be? Are you going to continue to compromise and tolerate, or are you going to turn from this and do what's right? He says there's consequences. You can read the rest of those verses and see there's consequences. There's consequences. For not obeying God. But there are rewards for obeying Him too. You just got to make a decision today about what you're going to do. Jesus said, Now could I be wrong? Could I be deceived? Sure. But I haven't had it brought to my attention and I don't see it. And I rejoice in that. But that doesn't mean that we don't keep our guard up. And it doesn't mean that we don't be diligent to not allow stuff into our lives. Because when you leave here, you have your own private life. I might not know what you're doing mom and dad might not know what you're doing husband and wife might not know what you're doing but the one with the eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished brass he knows what you're doing and I'm not just trying to scare you I'm just trying to warn you that you can't sin and get away with it there's a payment old uh, R.G. Lee old Southern Baptist preacher used to preach a sermon called payday someday and it will come either Jesus paid it all or you're going to pay it all. Choice is yours. Praise team, you come. We're going to pray and give a hymn of invitation. Father, we come to you today, Lord. Just asking now that you would apply this word to our heart, Lord. That that we would be diligent, Lord, to examine ourselves and to to forsake the world and the sin that we carry around with us, Lord, and and also to rejoice in a God that loves us, not a God that doesn't stand over us and constantly belittle us, but that lovingly calls to us to come and follow him and know him and obey him. A God that that has provided everything for us to have that relationship. Lord, it's my prayer today that if someone in this room or watching online is lost, that they would feel and understand already that, that great love and forgiveness that is available to them, that they would, they would stop making excuses and make today the day of salvation, Lord. Uh, it's by simple faith. The Bible doesn't say you have to have it all figured out before you come. You just trust in the One. And from that point on, He will begin to change you. Lord, so help us as a church to stand for truth, to do it with love and compassion, but to do it uncompromisingly. And Lord, I just thank you today for what we felt and experienced. And thank you for Shelby. And I pray today if there's others here in this room that need to follow you in a baptism or are ready to join this church, whatever the call is, that during this invitation, they would respond in faith we'll give you all the praise today for everything that happens in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, if you need to come, I'll pray with you. The altar's open. If you need to make a decision, I would love to talk to you.